E-cigs don't burn tobacco leaves, and they come in lots of flavors. That's what tobacco companies tell you. Here are three things tobacco companies don't say. One, many teens don't know their flavored e-cigs have nicotine. Two, nicotine is a poison that can rewire the teen brain. Three, 80% of kids who tried vaping did it because of the flavors. So even when it tastes like candy, nicotine is brain poison. Go to flavorshookkids.org for more. You are listening to The Bird Calls. For more breakdowns on the Pelicans, including interviews with coaches, journalists, and opposing experts, go to iTunes, search The Bird Calls, and subscribe today. back with another episode of the bird calls that didn't take long did it ollie uh once again i am your host preston else today we have a very special guest breaking down golden state and why they were so effective in game one and what the pelicans can potentially do to bounce back in game two. First up we are joined as always by our editor and chief mr ollie cosell ollie it's been a while sir at least we're starting on time. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, uh, we have a guest with us, uh, and I'll, I'll inform him that uh, I got the times wrong. I had two guests. I had David Grubb, of course, you guys just listened to that, and uh, he, of course, was on time. But Ali got there a little bit early, and that is my mistake. But we didn't do that this time. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. And of course, also not late, we've got Mr. Crangis McBasketball. Uh, You can follow him at Forum Blue and Gold, Nylon Calculus, Real uh, B-Ball Insider. He's a contributor there, as well as the co-host of At TC Pod. You can follow him at T1M underscore NBA. What is going on, sir? Hey, guys. Uh, you guys can just call me Tim. I don't, don't need to worry about the Crangis okay. stuff. But <laughs> happy to be here. Yeah, this, uh, this game one was not fun, uh, but hopefully this can turn into a better series moving forward. You know, I I have to dispute that because if, if you follow some of our Golden State friends, uh, some of our bloggers and writers, they were really feeling themselves early on in, in game one. <laughs> Ali, I don't know if you've noticed some of this, but uh, even Clay Thompson uh, seemingly hit a three early in the second quarter, and even he couldn't believe it. His eyes lit up so wide. I, I think even the Golden State Warriors and their fans uh, weren't necessarily surprised at how well that second quarter run went, but uh, just what work they made of this surging red hot Pelicans uh, team that had come in with nine straight wins, feeling themselves, like Ollie said in our last podcast, you know, just pointing at people. Uh, they were so confident coming into this one, and the Warriors just splatted them to the ground. How exactly did they do it, Tim? So I think a lot of it started out with the move that Steve Kerr made. Even before we 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 tipped off, uh, he started Swaggy P instead of JaVale McGee, which moved Kevin Durant to the four. I think this really helped the Warriors open up their offense. Um, and it allowed them, as a team who uses a lot of action to attack with shooters off of screens, um, instead of having... KD running off of those screens, he was able to set those screens and then be a threat rolling to the basket. And that was so important because if the Pelicans are going to switch, like they did a lot against these screens, instead of having KD matched up with a forward on the perimeter, I'd much rather have him matched up right inside after slipping to the rim 
uh, even if the defense switches and does get a chance to stop him from getting that easy dunk, you've got to post up for KD against somebody like Ian Clark or Rajon Rondo or Drew Holiday. And these are guys that he can really manhandle down low uh, with just, just to emphasize how effective that uh, mismatch post attack was for the Warriors. They were able to score. Uh, let me see. They were able to score about 1.7 points per possession uh, in the post when they were able to get mismatches. They had 12 points and seven possessions when there was no mismatch, they had two points on three possessions. And this Warriors team isn't one that likes to go to the post. But if you're going to give them a mismatch and, and they've got KD on a guy who's eight inches shorter than them, that's just easy money. And the way they like to have constant motion around the court on both sides of the court, it makes it harder to help on that isolation and help in the post. Because if you take a couple steps out of the way, you're uh, you're really hurting the defense by allowing a flare screen on the weak side to be wide open. Or if, if you cheat in, you might be allowing a roll to the basket. Um, if, if on that other side of the flare screen, there's only one defender, he's, he either has to pick, do I defend the three or do I defend the guy cutting to the rim? And so you, you really need both defenders there. So that keeps the Pelicans and it keeps that help side away from KD and lets him have all the time in the world he wants to operate. And we saw how effective that was in game one. Yeah, Tim, I just got done talking about how I felt like the Pelicans' best bet in that game, and then, of course, going forward, is just giving single coverage to Durant, but making sure that whoever is covering him has some length. And I thought Nico honestly did the best job on him uh, as to where I know the numbers kind of are in support of him, too. I think KD made knockdown four of 12 shots when Nico was guarding KD. So that was effective. And I know Solomon Hill didn't, of course, have the best minutes, but there were a few moments there defensively where I thought Solo Hill actually dissuaded Kevin Durant from doing whatever he wanted. As to where, as you just said, he rose over Drew Holiday uh, repeatedly or each one more, Rajon Rondo. Whenever there's a, a significantly smaller guy, he torched him. But what I'm curious about your opinion of is Alvin Gentry decided to come out with a, a, a kind of an unusual um, defensive strategy as to where he had Anthony Davis guarding Andre Iguodala, and then he stuck Drew Holiday on Draymond Green. I'm curious as to your thoughts about that, whether it was successful and whether they should continue with that or maybe switch back to something a little more typical, a little more traditional. Yeah, so that was an, a unique strategy and something that we don't really see until it comes playoff time. But it's it's that kind of thing that uh, I've seen the, the Lakers, as someone who covers the Lakers a lot, uh, I saw them do that during the season with a point guard guarding Tarek Black. Um, it's the same sort of thing with, with uh, who's at Rondo or Holiday guarding Draymond Green, you're going at these big guys who they're big, they can rebound, but neither of them can really score in the post. And Draymond on the season, his post uh, efficiency was only better than 25% of the league. And he only made 17 shots all season from the post. So you can take a non-factor in that way um, and put a guard on him. And one, he's not going to burn you in the post. He might be able to out-rebound you, but you're just going to have to box out there and fight. But it helps out when Draymond's setting screens for those pin downs that the Warriors like to run or their flare screens or the different actions they use to get their guards open. Because then when you're switching, you still have a guard guarding Clay Thompson or you still have a guard uh, on Andre Iguodala or you're keeping wings on wings. Um, and it's kind of like a pre-switch in a way by allowing a guard to stick on Draymond in the first place so that's how I see that working out uh it's an interesting strategy uh I 
I mean, I, I don't know how successful it was in that first game with those, like with that particular matchup. Um, but I understand the thought process there. And with all of these coaching decisions, obviously we see the results and many people just like to judge based off of the results. But I, I think you really have to look at these coaching moves from a process standpoint and say, was it the right decision? And we should be able to say whether it was the right decision based on the information we have going into the game, not just purely, okay, they lost, so it was a bad call. Or he scored two times, so it was a bad call. Um, so in that way, I understand the thinking and, I, and I, can, I can get behind an idea like that. And similarly with AD uh, guarding Iguodala, he's not a guy who I'm super worried about blowing by AD. Um, and he's another guy who is a streaky shooter. And when he's off, he's off. And that really helps the defense. And he's a guy that Davis might be able to help off of in order to defend the paint and take away some of those cuts to the rim um, or otherwise float around and, and help guard some of those off-screen shooters. Tim, you mentioned Andre Iguodala and Draymond Green both played well offensively. They didn't take a lot of shots, but when they did, they made them 9 of 15 on the night for a combined 28 points. And they made guys like Anthony Davis, who are help defending on other guys, pay. With that being said, the Pelicans have to expect that these guys are going to play that well offensively. However, defensively is where the Warriors really shine uh, slowing down the Pelicans to just 21 and 19 points in the second and third quarters. Uh, and they did it in a variety of ways. You mentioned uh, rotations, mismatches, and just finding themselves like Clay Thompson. I found him on three different Pelicans in three consecutive possessions. Some of these guys just have the ability to translate their defense against any level, any size of player. When you introduce somebody like Steph Curry into the lineup, a, a smaller guy who's adept offensively, but defensively presents a couple of disadvantages on the Pelican side of things. Do you think the Pelicans will, will generate a bit a bit more offense with the Warriors MVP back in the lineup. Uh, it's an interesting way to look at it, but I think that might be the case when we're looking at what makes a good defensive lineup strong. Uh, and you're looking at length, the more important thing, it's not the total wingspan of everybody. It's more about having good wingspan, but having it balanced and having little variance player to player because that leads to better switchability. And, and just like you're saying, we're able to see Clay Thompson guarding one through four on different possessions just because he's tall enough to contest and he can stay in front. Um, so when we introduce Steph to the lineup, obviously it does a lot of great things for the Warriors offensively. They get into transition more. I broke down in a like a 25-minute video yesterday that I released some different things to look out for and the difference uh, for Golden State with and without Steph. And they're just better at everything with stuff on the court. But defensively, he isn't that same length. He's not that same defensive stopper that we see from a lot of the wings that the Warriors have. So in that way, uh, there might be an opportunity for the Pelicans to take advantage of that and get inside. Uh, if he's switched on to you, you should be able to bully him wherever you're going. And um, I don't know. I, I, overall, I, Steph Curry is definitely a positive for your team. So the Pelicans are better off without him on the court. But just on that defensive end of things, I can see where you might be able to take advantage of, of some of the things he does defensively. For example, he's been a really poor isolation defender. Uh, he's been poor defending towards the rim. Um, he does a decent job in the pick and roll. He does a good job defending spot-up shooters. Uh, he even does a good job uh, defending off-screen shooters. So at the guard things, he does a good job. But when you get those switches, uh, which the Golden State likes to do, He's, he's someone who you might be able to attack in mismatches. Tim, that second quarter really masked any, if there were any, 
good things or positive things you can take away from the Pelicans' performance, you know, in the initial, like, say, 13 minutes or so of the game, where obviously both teams were tied at 39. Did you see anything that the Pelicans can build on or perhaps a weakness in the Golden State strategy as to where they can take advantage of it and maybe, you know, avoid that mammoth lull as to where everything just collapses all over the court for them? I absolutely did. And with what happened in the second and into the third quarters, we you, you kind of forget about it, but there were some things that the Pelicans build on can build on moving forward. Just in that first quarter, we saw that normal Pelicans offense that's getting uh, about one and a half actions per possession. And when I say actions, I mean like a ball screens in action or a pin downs in action or a flare screens in action. So they're organized set like screen setting to pressure the defense in different ways. And the Pelicans, when when I studied their film from round one, they were at they were at about one and a half per possession, which is good. Uh, in that first quarter, we saw similar organization, smart use of attacking the defense in different ways. Um, they'd have ball screens that turned into flare screens for for Miritich. Uh, we'd see pin downs within the the screeners cutting, so they were able to generate good looks in this game the Pelicans were only one for seven on open catch and shoot threes in the half court, which masks how well they were able to generate some shots at different points throughout the game. But when they were running their offense, they seemed to be getting what they wanted. And and again, they were a little bit mismatched in terms of height and wingspan. So a lot of these shots were still heavily contested, but when they work in a calm frame of mind and doing what they like to do, we saw that Pelicans offense that ends up being ranked second in my scheme ratings for the NBA because they were generating good shots. They were running good offense and it didn't always work out, but it was the right process and the results won't always be there, but that's what you just have to do. You have to grind through that. When we got to the second quarter, we saw the Warriors go on a big run offensively along with some good defense. We saw turnovers. Uh, We saw some calls that were going against the Pelicans. And when I went back and looked at the film, those actions per possession completely just dissolved. It was maybe one. It was mostly zero. It was a lot of isolation, post-ups. We're seeing post-ups for Etwan more. I don't think that's what the Pelicans want to be doing offensively. They seem to get much more sped up. And if I think if they can have patience, focus on the details, if they get a mismatch, don't have Etwan more try to beat somebody off the dribble. Uh, if, if you get the mismatch and AD is the one who has a guard on him, just pull the ball out, let AD post up, and then attack through that. Um, don't force it in transition. Don't drive right into length, which we saw a couple times. Just run your sets, get open shots. It worked in the first quarter. I think it can continue working in the series, not because of any particular matchup against Golden State, but just in the way that the Pelicans run their offense. They always have actions going on weak side, and it creates a lot of problems for the defense, no matter how you scheme it there are ways that the Pelicans can get, can get good shots as long as they do what they do and keep a, a level-headed mind, hold their composure, um, and, and run, those, run those plays well. 
It's interesting that you mentioned Etwan Moore because uh, he was one of the lone bright spots for the Pelicans. That's just how good the Golden State Warriors were defensively. He managed to go four for four in the first quarter before going 0 for four in the second quarter. And for many of the reasons that you discussed, uh, once they identified him as a target, uh, they pretty much eliminated him. Of course, he got three buckets in the third quarter, but it was too little too late at that point. The Pelicans' second leading score on the night with just 15. That's how things went for the Pelicans. One thing that we weren't anticipating heading into this one, although the Pelicans have been struggling with re- bounding at Spurs. And of course, that's something that coincides with losing DeMarcus Cousins and inserting Nikola Miritich into the lineup. They did have some difficulties with that early on against the Portland Trailblazers. But with that being said, uh, no one could I could have identified the Golden State Warriors as a team that could have out-rebounded the Pelicans by 20, specifically with JaVale McGee and Zaza Pachulia out of the lineup and Kevon Looney just playing 24 minutes. But that's precisely what they did, led by Draymond Green with Kevin Durant at the four. Uh, they, they managed to take advantage of the boards on both ends to the floor with seven first quarter offensive rebounds 13 overall in the game a 65 to 46 definitive advantage uh for the Warriors that allowed them to dictate throughout what did you see from the Warriors in terms of boxing out that made them so effective against the Pelicans so that's something they just do well There, there will be players on teams who they have a lot of talent and they kind of let some of those fundamental things go because they have the talent so these warrior players, they do everything well, and they don't let the little details fly to the wayside because they're great at shooting or, or they run some good sets. They run good sets because they execute the sets well, and they set good screens and they run off the screens properly with intelligence and with a proper technique. Defensively, they're able to contest shots and, and really end possessions because they're boxing out, because they're communicating. And those are some things that Anthony Davis does very, very well. I was actually having a conversation yesterday about this. He's another one of those guys that he does everything really, really well, no matter how big of a star he gets. He's still out there boxing out. But when you're so overmatched at each of the guard positions by four or five or six inches by position, it's really hard to hold the other team off the boards. And so you you talked about the rebounding differential. The big number that I look at when I look at a game is just the offensive rebounding differential because defensively the Warriors had a lot more defensive rebounds just because the the Pelicans miss a lot of shots but when I'm looking at how the game was impacted you see seven offensive rebounds for the Pelicans 13 for the Warriors they got six extra possessions from that and that's where the big difference comes into play so the the Pelicans really need to have their guards go into the paint when a shot goes up um, you, you don't obviously don't want to leave Clay Thompson wide open but if Draymond Green or Iguodala are out there leave them go help down low because the guys getting the offensive rebounds were Draymond Green at four, KD at two, West had two, Looney had two, McGee had two, Bell had one. It wasn't the guards getting the extra rebounds because they had a, a couple inches on you. It wasn't Clay Thompson or Nick Young. It wasn't Iguodala. It was the big guys. So you need to go help your big guys out. Um, and, and like you said, this wasn't something we were really anticipating. Uh, not, not in this particular way, just because the Warriors did go small with this matchup. They, they decided to start Nick Young. So the fact that they were able to enhance their offense through that change while still holding a very strong rebounding advantage is not good news for the Pelicans moving forward. Tim, I got a question for you, and I've got an expectation of that Steve Kerr will probably go to it again in the second game because of how well it worked in the opener. And that's, of course, sticking Kevin Durant on Drew Holiday uh, defensively. Uh, Drew only managed to score once out of nine tries against KD. And uh, 
early on in that game, I think he started off 0 for 3, and, and, and I think you touched on it. The Falcons had a couple of drives where they tried to get to the rim, but, of course, they met a bunch of arms or double teams, and Drew was one of those. He, uh, you know, just trying to get around Durant, but, you know, Kevin smartly gave him about four or five feet of space all throughout, and, of course, it's met him around the rim and easily blocked the shot. So I'm expecting Steve Kerr to possibly, at least for half the game, to use that because that, that, that neutralizes in one fell swoop a big-time scorer for New Orleans. So with that said, what can the Pelicans, what can Drew Holiday do to specifically circumvent KD's length on offense? Uh, put him in some screens. <laughs> uh, get, get him running off of screens, which is something the Pelicans do do, uh, although Drew specifically hasn't been effective catching and shooting off of those screens. He's, he's only, uh, his points per possession is in the 18th percentile, so he's been rather poor at that particular way of attack. But if you can run him off of some screens, use pick and rolls, uh, try to get him away from KD, that, that would be ideal. When you're pushing in transition, if you got any uh, mismatches or cross-matching, instead of, like, you don't need to attack right away. You don't need to drive right into the teeth of the defense. But there's uh, an in-between middle ground between going right at him in transition and deciding, all right, we're going to pull it out and reset. Because by pulling it out and resetting, you're allowing the defense to get back to the way they want to match up. So if the Pelicans can continue to hit that outlet pass to the wing, as they do fairly often, um, get it up there. If it's their attack, if it's not there, don't pull it out. Stay in a triple threat position. Uh, get right into your sets. Don't let the Warriors match up the way they want to. Um, but it's it's really tough going against KD, guys. It's, that guy's a monster. Uh, he's got so much length. So you need to be getting him uh, in positions where he needs to essentially be a guard um, and defend ball screens like a guard. And by doing things like that and then having the weak side action that the Pelicans like to use, you're able to get shooters open off of screens. And by having KD guarding Drew and having like AD come up and, and set a screen for him, you have both of the big men for Golden State involved in that one action. And through that, they're both away from the rim. So you have two offensive players taking away their two rim protectors. And then between your other three guys, you need them moving and screening for each other and cutting to the rim and taking advantage of the fact that both of those big guys are out defending Drew and trying to stop Anthony Davis rolling. Yeah, definitely. One uh, thing that I wanted to, to touch upon was the defensive scheme of the Golden State Warriors. You mentioned a lot of it uh, very well. Thank you for doing that with with that being said, Rajon Rondo was somebody that that had pretty much all the space he could deal with in game one. And they were kind of forcing him to take the jumper. And he he wasn't settling. He was instead trying to get other guys acclimated, get get guys going early Two specific uh, possessions that I'm thinking of. You know, he's kicking it out to the corner to Solomon Hill to Ian Clark. But the Warriors are giving him the paint to do with as he sees fit for those jumpers. Uh, for runners, any kind of floater he wants to instill. They're not giving him the basket, but if he wants that 6 to 12-foot range, take it. Is it imperative that he do that just to get the Warriors to to kind of come out and take the bait and give a little bit more space for the rest of the Pelican shooters? If he were an excellent mid-range shooter, I would say, okay, but we're talking about a guy who isn't even in the 50th percentile as a mid-range shooter. And so you can you can look at this tactical approach from golden state the way they're they're just completely dropping off and they're giving him that shot um and the pelicans need to react to that and take it not just take what the defense is giving you 
but understand what the defense is trying to give you and take advantage of that through other means. So there are two particular things I think that Rondo and the Pelicans can do to attack the way that Golden State is just completely dropping off into the paint to defend him. The first would be to, instead of having him take that jump shot, have him dribble over and dribble handoff with another guard um, or or somebody, a, a wing on the perimeter. Because what the Golden State Warriors are giving you is they're in the paint, their second defender, Rondo's defender, isn't there to help in that handoff, in that screen and roll situation. So through that, you can get somebody the ball who maybe is a better mid-range shooter than than Rondo and somebody getting downhill. If he's if he's going to drive into towards the middle, sees they're dropping off on him, and then just continue onto the other wing, dribble handoff, kind of screen that uh, wing player's man as he's handing the ball off, that can get you a Etwan Moore or get you uh, Drew Holiday attacking downhill into the paint who maybe can finish at the rim or maybe hit that pull-up um, or, or maybe pull up for three. Uh, so that's one thing they can do. The other thing would be to rescreen off of the pick and roll. So the first time the screen happens, they're just dropping back, have that same screener instead of rolling right away or instead of popping right away, right away, find Rondo's man again, turn the other direction and screen a second time and then have Rondo drive that way and you might be able to get into the paint. So those are those are two, I think, fairly simple ideas that I feel comfortable communicating about uh, via audio, I could certainly draw some stuff up for you. Um, it wouldn't translate as well in, through this uh, particular platform, but those are two things I think the Pelicans can try to do to attack the way the Warriors are defending Rondo in those situations. All right, Tim, I'm going to put you on a spot. Give me the biggest thing, single biggest thing the Pelicans can do that'll give them a chance to steal the victory, a possible big upset in game two. Oh, man. Uh, you, you just got to... And I, th- I think there's a million things you can probably think of, but what's one thing that really is imperative for them to do well, or it could be a player, it can be a specific strategy. I mean, you tell me. I think the biggest thing would just be patience and staying calm because Golden State will have their runs. They're going to go on their six point runs, their eight nothing runs, but being mentally tough and able to, and when I say mentally tough, what I mean is continuing to execute the game plan. When they go on a 6 nothing run, if you just respond to that by losing track of the game plan and driving into the teeth of the defense wildly, not running your plays, that turns that 6 nothing run and 8 nothing run into a 14 nothing run, 16 nothing run. So in order to prevent that, you need to stay calm. You can't just burn timeouts all day anytime there's a, an 8 nothing run, but understand the game plan, execute the game plan, continue to play Pelicans basketball. And this team offensively has the scheme, has the X's and O's, has some of the players that they should be able to score on the Warriors. And they're going to have to make a ton of little changes, and and I can only give one answer. So they're going to need to take care of that. But once they have that taken care of, you got to live it. Um, Alvin Gentry can say all he wants pregame and at halftime, but this needs to be a constant focus on executing what they need to do and continue to run their offense. Because if we see them go out there and run half an action per play, it's so much harder to score on anybody, let alone the Golden State, Golden State Warriors defense. So you need to be giving yourself the best chance to succeed. And if you do that, you're going to get more wide open shots. And uh, Etwan Moore and Ian Clark, Solomon Hill, they're going to knock those down. And if you get those mismatches on AD, keep your composure, 
pull it out, get him the ball inside and, and let him go to work. That, that's what I'd say. For, execute the game plan. When in doubt, go to Anthony Davis and continue running your plays. Keeping your composure, sticking with the game plan. This is something that Alvin Gentry was preaching after game one, was that we're not going to change anything that we're doing. We're not going to slow down the pace. Uh, Clay Thompson even complained that he was exhausted after the game because uh, playing against the Spurs, the the Pelicans are just younger, much faster, running up and down the court, uh, getting shots up quicker into possessions. Uh, with with that being said, you mentioned some of the defensive things that the Pelicans uh, managed to try, you know, hiding Anthony Davis on Andre Iguodala and Draymond Green. Those guys made them pay with shots when they had the ability to do so. And Draymond even referred to the Pelicans defense against the Blazers as gimmicky. And he did credit them for executing. But the, the trapping and the double team is not something that they can utilize against Golden State. And we've talked at, in depth about things that the Pelicans can do offensively to just kind of, you know, uh, play their game, get those shots, get some more action. Uh, try penetrating with Rajon Rondo and getting another action to another guard who can take that 12-footer. But with that being said, defensively, they, there's just not a lot to point to uh, in terms of what the Pelicans did well in game one. Uh, 35 points by the Golden State Warriors in the first quarter, 41 in the second quarter. And we did expect the Warriors to come down and uh, you know blow the, blow the doors off the, the Oracle, so to speak. But with that being said, 76 points in the first half. You can also attribute a lot of that to those offensive rebounds, something that the Pelicans will likely clean up, and to the free throw disparity. But with that being said, is there anything the Pelicans can do to, say, hold Golden State under 60? So when I was looking at the data in the film for this game, I was looking at some of the big areas that Warriors used to attack. So they had 27 points in transition on 20 possessions per, per synergy. They had those 14 points on 10 possessions in the post. And we talked about a lot of those around mismatches, but between cuts and off screen shooters, like Clay Thompson getting a pin down and, and running up, catching and shooting or catching and attacking, they had 40 points in 36 possessions. And this is their biggest focus on offense. And this is the largest weakness the Pelicans have had this regular season. Like throughout the year of all of the different synergy play types, off-screen possessions has been the area they've given up the most points per game over what an average team would be expected to concede. So that particular matchup is just so poor. Um, But if you're going to turn that around, you have to start with the fundamentals. And when we're seeing Golden State execute, uh, and and I talked about this a little bit in that video I referenced earlier, the way they like to attack with those off-screen shooters is fairly regular. It's not the most creative. They'll run plays and they'll use this a lot, but they're running a pin down most of the time. So you should have an idea of what's coming and you just need to be able to switch properly with good technique and communicate. So you have to communicate, you have to communicate early enough Uh, Because if you communicate late, you might be able to stop Clay. You might be able to switch in time. But if you're busy with two guys pointing at Clay Thompson, that's when Draymond Green slips to the rim and gets a dunk. So the Pelicans have to know what's coming, have that defensive mental awareness, and communicate right away, switch right away, and not allow either of those two players to get that open three or get that easy dunk to the rim. So you, you should know what's coming. If you, you execute those fundamentals, that's one big way of cleaning this up because, so, like I said, so many of the points the Warriors were scoring were off of these cuts, which are just easy layups, easy dunks, and then they're, they're getting open threes off of these kinds of possessions. So it's tough in Oracle. It's so much harder on the road to communicate, and this is something they've been poor with all season long. But if the Pelicans have any chance in the series, they're going to need to fundamentally change defensively 
in this one area and start doing some of those things that every team should be doing. These, this isn't, these aren't novel concepts. There are only so many ways to defend screens. Uh, and especially when the Warriors spread the, spread the floor out as much as they do. So there are only a couple different ways you can get, defend it. And if they're going to commit to switching and trying to defend these things without giving up open threes, they're going to need to switch. So you got to switch the right way. And that'll be important. If they don't do that, they're not going to win the series. All right, Tim, I've got one last one for you. And of course, you know what's coming. I need a prediction from you in game two. Not only just the winner, but exactly how close you expect the uh, game to be. Ooh, okay. Uh, so I was very surprised by the result in game one. I was anticipating it being a much closer game. Uh, it kind of got away from the Pelicans. I'm ner- nervous to to uh, go with what I would have said before game one, but I don't know. I, I think the Warriors win game two. I don't think it's a blowout. I would say it's, it's under a 10-point game. Uh, I think my model... So if Steph Curry's back, my, my uh, NBA like gambling model um, has the Warriors by like four points, I believe. I would take them maybe by seven or eight because I think the Pelicans do match up in a couple ways pretty well. And if they can execute what they want to do, they have like a 30 to 40% chance to win the game. I still think Golden State will be favored. I expect them to win, but I don't think it'll be a blowout this game. And I think the Pelicans will be able to win or be very close in like three of the four quarters. Now this one's a bit sillier and then we'll, we'll send this off on you uh, uh, on this one. Uh, the Warriors bench was highly productive in this one, as we anticipated. I'm speaking of course about Kevon Looney who posted a positive net rating of 34 in just 24 minutes. David West, uh, not too much, but eight points made shots when he had the opportunity to do so uh, had two steals and a block. Of course, Quinn cook 11 points, and uh, Sean Livingston did what Sean Livingston does. He got into the post and uh, he got what he wanted with his length, uh, six foot seven. He got three assists in just a, a limited uh, span of time. With that being said, the Pelicans just, we were worried about it coming into this one. Uh, didn't get a lot from their bench. Ian Clark posted a negative 23 in just 28 minutes. Uh, Check Diallo even got some run at some point. He didn't see a lot of minutes in the Blazers series. And, of course, you have Darius Miller, who uh, gives the size to maybe stay in front of somebody like Kevin Durant, but just isn't an aggressive enough shooter. Uh, he has the opportunities to take the looks, but he doesn't. He too often gives it up to a poor shooter like a Solomon Hill or Rajon Rondo or whoever's in his direct vicinity. He just doesn't have the confidence to take advantage of those uh, possibilities or uh, when they opportunities when they present themselves. But Solomon Hill is someone a lot of our readers have been asking about. He's he's nearly unplayable at this point offensively, and he's even hurting spacing when he finds himself in the paint. His defender comes with him and is allowed to help defend on other guys. At this point, would you do you expect the bench of the Pelicans to bounce back, or would you think about something improbable like playing all five starters for the Pelicans 40 minutes each and just finding some way to distribute those other 40 minutes between maybe Ian Clark and Darius Miller and just going with an incredibly short rotation? That's something I would think is more plausible if the pace were to be much slower, but both of these teams like to play fast uh, and it's going to be an up and down game and it's, it's tough to outrun the Warriors at all, but with a short bench in their building is, is particularly difficult. So if they were to go with a shortened rotation like that, I would expect the Pelicans to try to make more of a, uh, a psychological change and slow it down a little bit probe see if you can attack it in transition but if it's not there slow it down go through your sets and and try to save some energy that way otherwise it's really difficult to go 
into Oracle with seven guys and come out with a W. Um, but in the same sense, just like you were saying, that we have one of the weaker benches um, in the league and in the playoffs in this game. So you're going to need Ian Clark to hit those open shots. You're going to need Miller to hit, take and hit those open shots when he has them. Um, it's it's tough to have high expectations of different guys, but I don't know. Do, we might see more from Jordan Crawford. He what he, he had like 13, 14 points. He was their third leading scorer um, in, in just eight minutes. So if he can provide a little bit of a spark off the bench, you might maybe flip-flop his minutes with uh, one of the other guys who's getting about 15 um, and, and try that out. I don't know if they'll go to seven guys, but maybe eight guys with with Clark and Crawford and, and Miller. Uh, but then again, you, you need to have Diallo in there as well to uh, take some time away from Miritich and Davis. So it's it's a really tough situation. I don't have an answer because there there isn't a very simple, oh, this is how you beat the Warriors, of course. Um, but I'll be interested to see what Alvin Gentry goes with. If I were to guess, I'd say they'd probably still go with with about an eight-man rotation. Yeah, you certainly don't have to worry about Jordan Crawford's defensive shortcomings. Uh, the the Warriors were pretty much scoring against whoever was on the court. So maybe instilling somebody with that irrational confidence, as Bill Simmons likes to say. He was against the Warriors reserves, but uh, six of seven in eight minutes, 14 points, third leading score right behind each one more. So it could be a possibility. But like you said, at this point in time, it's one game. It's on the Warriors floor. Uh, everything was seemingly going their way from the opening tip. Uh, uh, a cross court pass or a full court pass, I should say, from Rashawn Rodder to Anthony Davis. Uh, he was tangled up by Draymond Green, and the ball bounces off of him and goes out of bounds. No call, and of course, all the rebounds, uh, loose possession, seemingly bounce Golden State's way. Uh, I, I think you're right. You have to go into game two and just anticipate that it's not going to happen again. It's going to be closer, and if you can get to that fourth quarter, uh, the Pelicans have been really good in the clutch this year. Something like uh, I don't know, twenty and five in their last three months in games decided by five points or less. If you can just keep it close to late. Who knows? Maybe the Pelicans uh, can can surprise some people in the Oracle. Before I let you go, Ali Cosell, I stepped in front of you, sir. Do you have anything before we let Mr. Tim Cran just go? No, I just want to thank you, Tim, for coming on. This was excellent. I hope we can have you again. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was fun, guys. Uh, yeah, let me know anytime. Uh, I'm a, I'm available. I mostly talk about the Lakers, but I'm trying to expand some more of a general NBA uh, coverage because there aren't too many guys out there who have that X's and O's and also the data side of things. So as someone who I, I ran an analytics department for a D one power five basketball team, I'm happy to be able to provide some additional insight and, and just talk about good basketball. And the Pelicans are one of my favorite teams this year, just watching them play. So I'd be happy to come on again. Thanks guys. Of course, you can follow him at T1M underscore NBA. Of course, he contributes to Forum Blue and Gold, Nylon Calculus, Real Ball Insider, as well as co-host to TC Pod. Uh, thank you to you. Of course, you've been listening to the Bird Calls. If you like what you're hearing, make sure you go over to iTunes and subscribe. Give us a five-star rating. We really appreciate it. Uh, we're going to keep giving you guys great info, game in and game out, for as long as the Pelicans can manage to last against this powerhouse Golden State Warriors team who seemingly uh, have come to life when the Pelicans needed it uh, the least, I should say. Uh, for now, I'm Preston Ellis. Follow Ali at Ali Cosell as always. And we'll talk to you guys hopefully after a win Tuesday night. If not, uh, we'll recap it on Wednesday and we'll give you guys a preview before game three. For now, let's go Bells.
hope you've enjoyed listening to the bird calls on OTG and nothing but net here on Dash Radio. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes, retweet, share with your friends, and most importantly, subscribe today. And now, a thought from Geico Motorcycle. It took 15 minutes to take a spirit animal quiz online. Please be the cheetah. Please be the cheetah. And learn your animal isn't the cheetah, but the far less appealing blobfish. Oh, come on. To add insult to injury, you could have used those 15 blobfish minutes to switch your motorcycle insurance to Geico. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on motorcycle insurance. And now, a thought from Geico Motorcycle. It took 15 minutes to take a spirit animal quiz online. Please be the cheetah. Please be the cheetah. And learn your animal isn't the cheetah, but the far less appealing blobfish. Oh, come on. To add insult to injury, you could have used those 15 blobfish minutes to switch your motorcycle insurance to Geico. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on motorcycle insurance.